Hello, you guys. What is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast and on YouTube every Wednesday. So Killer Instinct Wednesdays and you're not going to want to miss it. Now today, you guys, today is not just any episode of Killer Instinct. Today is the 200th episode of Killer Instinct. I feel like we just celebrated the 100th episode literally two weeks ago, but I checked the other day and I couldn't believe that we are actually at 200 episodes. It has been the wildest ride and seeing that big of a milestone just always makes me so grateful and appreciative for you guys for being along this wild journey with me. Whether you're a newer listener or someone who has been here since the very beginning, I can't even begin to express how appreciative I am for you guys. I've always said that Killer Instinct is just as much mine as it is yours. Like you guys are Killer Instinct. There would be no Killer Instinct without you. So I just want to say thank you so much for getting us to 200 episodes. It means the absolute world to me. And let's get ready for the next 200 All right, you guys, with all the sappiness aside, with that all being said, you guys are looking at the title of this episode, and this one is absolutely wild. Today's episode is another one of those episodes where you think you know what's going on the entire time, then all of a sudden there's a twist, there's a turn, there's something different. So as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are discussing the solved case of Cindy Borton. So with that being said, Let's jump right on into it today. Cynthia Ann Borton, who goes by the name Cindy, was born on May 22nd, 1949 in Marshall County, Iowa, to her parents, Marcella and Vernon. She was one of two siblings and has a brother named Daryl. Cindy was raised by her parents just outside of Des Moines, Iowa, And growing up, Cindy and her brother were incredibly close, and Cindy and Daryl would always reflect on their stories from childhood. They would always talk about the times that they had at the farm, all the adventures that they went on. So they definitely had a fun and exciting and loving upbringing. Now, once Cindy got to be a teenager, she started working at a local restaurant, and it was at that restaurant that she met a man named Robert Borton. Now, when Robert walked in to the restaurant and sat down one day, he saw Cindy and pretty much from there on, it was game over. The two of them exchanged phone numbers at the restaurant, began dating, and shortly after that, they got married. Once they got married in 1969, they moved to Shenandoah, Iowa shortly after, and that is where Robert became a pastor, and the two of them had their first and only child together, a boy named John. Cindy was extremely family-oriented, and she definitely enjoyed being the pastor's wife and taking on that role, but she also knew how important it was for her to have her own sense of independence and for her to have her own identity outside of a wife and a mother. 
And also she wanted to support her family as well and help in that regard. So she ended up getting a job at the local donut shop. Now, when it came to Cindy, being a mother was her number one priority. She put John above all else in life. And Cindy excelled at being a mother. She had an extremely warm and nurturing way about her. And Cindy wasn't just warm and welcoming to her own family. She was the exact same way with everyone else in Shenandoah as well. In fact, she even told John, her son, that she had an open door policy for him and all of his friends. John's friends would often come over and they would all sit in Cindy's kitchen and she would feed them and they would talk. And a lot of John's friends felt like Cindy was a second mother to them. And that's exactly what Cindy wanted. She wanted to create a space where people felt welcomed and loved and appreciated and accepted. Now let's talk about Shenandoah, Iowa for a second. So Shenandoah is a very, very small community. It's a farming town that has a population of about 5,000 people. And it's a very beautiful rural area. There's cornfields everywhere. And just like we always say, it's a town where everyone knows everyone. It's described as a peaceful community where everyone is just simply kind and nice to one another. And everyone in Shenandoah loved Cindy. People knew the Bortons due to Robert being the pastor and Cindy being his wife and John having his friends at school. So the Bortons were a very well-known and respected family in this small town and everyone loved them. So this all brings us to September 6th of 1988. Now on this day, the police in Shenandoah got a call from Cindy's husband, Robert, at about 3.40 p.m. that day to tell them that he had walked into his house to find his wife, Cindy, lying dead on their kitchen floor. Now, police rushed over to the scene, and when they arrived, they were able to see for themselves how absolutely brutal this murder was. Cindy was found lying in a pool of her own blood with a two-pronged serving fork sticking out of her neck. It was clear to police that Cindy had been stabbed multiple times. Police were able to put together pretty quickly that the weapons, yes, plural, used in this crime all came from inside of Cindy's home. They could tell that there were two kitchen knives used, as well as a two-pronged fork and a four-pronged fork that were all found on the scene. Police were also able to tell that Cindy definitely put up a fight against her attacker as she had defensive wounds all over her hands and her forearms as well. Not only that, police were able to tell that at one point during her attack, Cindy had attempted to call for help as the home phone line had been completely ripped out of the wall leading them to believe that Cindy had attempted to call 911, however, was forcibly removed from doing that. Now, once the medical examiner was able to perform an autopsy, they were able to conclude that Cindy had been stabbed a total of 29 times with at least all four of the weapons that police had identified. They were also able to get a time frame on when they believed the murder happened due to the fact that Cindy had undigested spaghetti in her stomach. And because of that finding, the medical examiner was able to conclude that the time of death had been just after 1 p.m. on September 6th. 
Now, another piece of important information to note here is that there was no signs of forced entry at all in the house. There was no broken windows, no broken doors, no broken glass anywhere, which led police to believe even further that this had to have been done by someone that Cindy knew. Now, while police were canvassing the house, they had Robert wait outside due to the fact that they wanted to be able to properly examine the crime scene, but also due to the fact that Robert just did not need to be in the house from a mental standpoint, seeing what was going on. However, when police exited the house after they had gone over the crime scene to talk to Robert, Robert wasn't alone this time. At this point, Robert had been with his 18-year-old son, John, waiting outside the house to to see what police had to say. Now, according to John, he said that that day after school on September 6th, he had walked home just as he did any normal day. And when he walked up to his house, he could see an ambulance right in his front driveway, as well as his father, Robert, crying in the driveway, leaning against the front of Cindy's car. John said when he got to the house and saw those two things combined, he knew in the pit of his stomach that something had happened that was about to change his life forever. And in that moment is when he dropped his backpack in the front yard, ran up to his dad, Robert, and asked what was going on. And that is when Robert informed John that his mother, Cindy, had passed away. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's instant alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments.com Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Now, something that's very crucial to remember when we're looking at how police conducted this case is the time frame of when Cindy's murder took place. We are talking 1988. So the technology was obviously nowhere near what it is today. There was no DNA technology at that time. And so because of that, it made finding the killer just that much more difficult. But regardless of that, police did have an idea of where to start in this case. They looked at the statistics during this time frame and knew that 85% of murders in Iowa were committed by someone that was close to the victim. And so based off of that, but also just based off of everything that we know about true crime, it is not going to be a surprise to you at all when I say that the first person that police looked at in this case was Robert. Now, the reason that this should be no surprise to you is because whenever there is a murder, the first person police always look at is the significant other. So because of that, obviously they're going to look at Robert, but not only that, Robert was also the one that found Cindy's body. So police knew that they needed to sit down and talk with Robert, and that is exactly what they did. 
Now, when police sat down with Robert, they asked him to walk them through the timeline of what September 6th looked like for him. Now, according to Robert, he said on the morning of September 6th, he woke up and went off to work just like any normal day. I told you guys that Robert was a pastor, which was true, but he also worked at an auto body shop part-time because being a pastor in the small community that Shenandoah was and is, it wasn't a lucrative income for Robert. So he needed to get something else on the side to help support his family. So that is why he worked part-time at the auto body shop. So according to Robert, he woke up on September 6th, saw his wife, saw John, had breakfast, and went off to work just like any normal day. Robert said that around noon, he then went back to the house to have lunch where he met Cindy and she served him spaghetti, which is the same spaghetti that would then be found undigested in her stomach. Now, going home during lunch was nothing unusual for Robert, as Robert told police that he typically did go home to see Cindy on his lunch breaks. So after he eats his spaghetti with Cindy, he said he then left a little after 1 p.m. so he could head back to work. So his lunch break was about an hour. Now, like I mentioned earlier, Cindy worked at a donut shop and she was scheduled to have a shift that day that started at 2 p.m. However, she never showed up. Now, this was extremely unlike Cindy. She was a very responsible and punctual person. If there was ever a time that she was going to be late, which was typically never, because again, she was super responsible, always on time. But if she ever were to be late, she would definitely call ahead and let someone know. So when Cindy did not show up to her shift, her coworker knew that something was not right. So they decided to give Robert a call and let him know that Cindy wasn't there yet. Now, Robert said that when he got this first phone call from the coworker, he didn't really think much of it. He thought it was very possible that after eating lunch, Cindy could have just taken a nap and overslept. So he told the coworker, don't worry about it. She'll probably be there in no time and then hung up. Now, about an hour after that, when Cindy still did not show up for work, the coworker called Robert again, explaining to him the situation. And this is when Robert decided that he was going to go home himself and check on Cindy and see why she wasn't at work like she was supposed to be. But again, Robert said that even when he got that second phone call, he still wasn't really worried. In his mind, he still thought that Cindy was just sleeping and he told the coworker, don't worry, I'm going to go home and I'm going to send her on her way. So that was the type of casualness in the conversation that was had. However, when Robert arrived at the house at 3.30 p.m. that day, he walked in to an absolute bloodbath. Now, like I mentioned earlier, Robert had called the authorities at approximately 3.40 p.m., so just about 10 minutes after he got home. Now, something that stuck out to police and struck them as odd is when Robert told police that after he had called 911 and was waiting for the authorities to arrive, Robert had taken the family dog and brought the dog outside and tied the dog to a tree. Now, Authorities thought that this was strange because they thought that why would the dog be the first thing on your mind? Why would you not be tending and caring to your wife 
who has now clearly been brutally attacked and is laying in a pool of her own blood, why would you not care to her instead of caring to your dog and tying your dog to a tree? However, Robert defended this by saying that the reason he tied the dog to the tree was because he knew the ambulance and the paramedics and the police were all going to be in and out of the house, and he just wanted to get the dog out of the way so that they could do their job more smoothly without any interruptions. So that was the first thing that struck police odd about Robert. And the suspicion around Robert only grew from there, especially when talking to police about what he believed could have happened that day. When police asked him during their questioning, what do you think happened? Robert told them that he thought that this could have all just been an accident. Robert went on to tell police that he thought that Cindy could have just tripped and fallen on the two-prong fork that was later found in her neck. Now, the whole theory about this being a mistake and it being an accident was, just to be very frank about it, it was so outrageous to police and so lacking common sense to them that in their mind, the fact that that would even be a thought in his brain was raising a red flag. So in the police's viewpoint right now, they have the husband of their victim, who not only was the first person to find her body, but was also the last known person to see her alive. And not only that, that same person is now trying to tell police that he believes that this could have all just been one big accident and Cindy could have just fallen and the fork just so happened to land in her neck, and that's what caused all of this. Now, it's important to know at this time that police didn't have the full autopsy report. This conversation that Robert had with police was very, very soon after police had arrived to the house, so they didn't have the full autopsy report yet to confront Robert with those facts about the actual cause of death and how many times Cindy was actually stabbed. But again, police knew just by looking at Cindy that this was not an accident. Now, when police were interrogating Robert, another thing that they found very strange was Robert's lack of emotion. Now, we've all, we've been through this before. We talk about how everyone grieves differently. Everyone processes emotions differently. However, police were very puzzled by the fact that Robert's wife had just been brutally murdered. And not only that, Robert was the one to find Cindy. He was the first person to see her in that state. And you would think that he would be acting very frantic or traumatized in some way. However, Robert was very casual about everything. When talking to police, he was very matter of fact. He was very, this is what happened. Here's the timeline. This is where I was. This is what we did. And for police, it just seemed weird. The fact that this guy found his wife dead on the kitchen floor after being stabbed 29 times, and he's just acting like this is an everyday occurrence. Continuing their conversation with Robert, police also asked him about what his relationship with Cindy was like, which is when he told them that him and his wife did fight on occasion. However, it was nothing that was extreme or nothing that was concerning. So police and Robert end up wrapping up their conversation because police can't hold Robert on anything. They have no evidence against him. They just have a weird feeling, but you can't arrest someone 
on a weird feeling. So they had to let him go. Now, after they let him go, police then wanted to cooperate Robert's alibi, which was that he was at work during the times that he said he was. And when police got a hold of Robert's boss, the boss was able to confirm that Robert was at work during the times that he said that he was. However, the boss did have something to tell the police about Robert. During the conversation of cooperating the alibi, the boss told authorities that when Robert came back to work after his lunch break, he had changed his clothes. Now, when police heard this, this was obviously extremely unsettling. This was not something that Robert typically did. And when he got back to work after his lunch break, Robert told his coworkers that he dropped his clothes off at the dry cleaning, which was true. He did end up dropping the clothes off at the dry cleaning. However, that just made things that much more difficult for police and also made Robert just look that much more suspicious because in police's mind, they were now painting this picture of Robert attacking Cindy during his lunch break and then taking those same clothes that could have had blood spatter or any other sort of evidence on them and taking them to the dry cleaning. Now, Robert did give fingerprint samples to the police because even though there was no DNA technology back then, they did have fingerprints. They were able to collect fingerprints at the crime scene and match them to other potential persons of interest. So they took Robert's fingerprints. However, Robert's fingerprints were not a match to any of the four weapons that were found on the scene. So even though police in their mind were very much convinced that Robert had to have been responsible for this, all of the signs are really pointing in the opposite direction because the fingerprints aren't a match. Robert's alibi is corroborated by his boss and they just don't have any physical evidence to link him to this murder. So because of that, police really just had no other choice rather than to move on from that theory. Now, on the night of September 6th, police were also able to talk to another person in the Borton household, and that would be John, Cindy and Robert's 18-year-old son. Now, as you can imagine, when police wanted to talk to John, he was in no mood to talk to anyone. He had just been through one of, if not the most traumatizing things that a human can experience. And John even remembers the day that the murder took place, the day that he heard that his mom had died, he just started walking. He left his house and began walking. He walked around the neighborhood. He just wanted to be alone. And during this walk, he recalls one of his best friends, Jim. Jim had pulled up in a car that was being driven by his parents. And Jim and his family, who had obviously heard the news at this point because again with this small town news traveled like wildfire Jim and his parents were trying to help console John and bring him into the car to take him back to their house to try and you know distract him and be there for him and he wanted nothing to do with it he continued to walk he ignored them until ultimately he ended up back home and spoke to police. Now, when he spoke to police, the conversation basically consisted of police asking about his parents' marriage, to which he told police that their marriage wasn't as great as Robert had made it seem. John had told authorities that Robert and his mom had fought 
a lot. And he did believe that his dad did have some rage issues. However, despite that, he also told police that regardless of the arguments that they had had, they had gotten to the point in their marriage that they decided to work through their issues together instead of pinning them against one another and instead of divorcing. Now, along with questioning John about his parents, police also asked him what September 6th looked like for him. So what the morning of the murder looked like. And according to John, he said that the morning started off normal. However, he did say that him and his mom, Cindy, had gotten into an argument right before he went to school. He said that earlier that morning, he was not in the mood to go to school. He didn't want to go. However, despite John not wanting to go to school, Cindy told John, you know, you're going to have to go anyways, essentially. So this created an argument because John was adamant about the fact that he did not want to go to school that day. There really wasn't any particular reason for it. He wasn't sick. It wasn't like a mental health day type of thing. It was just that he didn't want to go to school. And Cindy told him, sorry, but you're going. And so this ensued an argument between the two of them. And John remembers that the last words that he said to his mother were not particularly the nicest before he grabbed his bag and ran out the door. Now, things got a little bit stickier with John's story when police had started talking to neighbors of the Bortons, and one neighbor in particular remembered seeing a teenager that matched John's description running away from the Borton home in the early afternoon of the 6th. So after police heard that John had gotten into an argument with his mom and then heard that a neighbor had seen a teenager that matched John's description running away from the house in the early afternoon, police actually started to shift gears a little bit and they started to put their attention towards John. So because of that, police had to verify with John's teachers as well as John himself and some of John's friends about what his class schedule looked like on the 6th. And this is when police learned that during the hours of 12 p.m. and 3 p.m., John didn't have classes that day. So it was essentially like a free period, a very long free period, but a free period nonetheless. So he had no classes that day, which only increased police's suspicions because they thought that this would have given him the perfect opportunity to leave campus, go home, and potentially have been the one responsible for this. However, police were able to confirm John's whereabouts through talking to some of his teachers. They also spoke with two of John's friends, one who included Jim that I had mentioned earlier, being John's best friend. Police spoke with Jim and another one of John's friends who confirmed with police that John had been at school the entirety of the day and also just told police that there was no possible way that John could ever do something like this, especially to his own own mother. They confirmed that John had been absolutely distraught over this entire situation. And so because of that, now police were able to confirm John's whereabouts and knew that even though he did have a free period, there were teachers that saw him at the school. There were other classmates that saw him. So he was cleared of any suspicion whatsoever. So now police were really back to the drawing board. But this is when something very bizarre began happening. 
In the weeks following Cindy's murder, there were several arsony fires that had occurred in Shenandoah. Now, Shenandoah being the small town that it was, it was unusual to have any type of crime being committed in this small town. But to have murder and fires together, it definitely made police believe that these two things could definitely have been connected. Now, this started several weeks after the death of Cindy Borton. There was an arson fire that had been started. And when the fire was all put out, there was actually a note that was found. The note left at the place of the fire read, quote, Compliments of the Night Stalker, Broad Street Anderson Pickup, and Cindy Borton. Now, if you're very familiar with true crime, or even if you're not, you more than likely have heard of the Night Stalker, the serial killer based out of Los Angeles, Richard Ramirez. We have talked about him in a previous episode. Now, this was not the original Night Stalker, because at this point, Richard Ramirez had already been arrested. So this was someone who was a copycat pretending to be the actual Night Stalker. And even though the end of the note didn't read to make a whole lot of sense, police knew that more than likely the same person that wrote this note was connected to the murder of Cindy Borton. So police scanned the note for any fingerprints, and luckily they were able to get a fingerprint on the note. However, when they sent it back to the crime lab, there was no match in the system. And in the weeks following that fire, there were an additional two more fires, each one being signed by N.S., the Night Stalker. So police at this point were completely stumped. They had no idea where to even continue to look for Cindy's murder. They had completely ruled out Robert. They had ruled out John and they couldn't figure out who else would want to harm Cindy this way. She had no known enemies. I went on and on in the beginning about how she was the most loved person in Shenandoah. She was very well known, well respected. And so police were completely stumped. Now that was until January 31st, 1989. So now we're talking months after Cindy's murder. Now on this day, there was a high school student named Jackson. Now on this day, Jackson had walked into the police department and told authorities that he wanted to talk to them in regards to Cindy Borton. When Jackson sat down with police, he told them that on the day prior, January 30th, he was hanging out with a friend of his. And when he was hanging out with this friend, he could tell that the friend was just acting a little odd, out of character, like something was bothering them. And so Jackson asked his friend, like, is anything bugging you? Are you okay? What's going on? And this is when his friend told him that there was something that was bothering him. And when Jackson asked what that was, this friend responded by saying that the thing that was bothering him was that he had murdered Cindy Borton. Now, when this friend first told Jackson this, Jackson didn't really believe it. However, this friend then began to tell details of the murder to Jackson, which Jackson then relayed to police. And these details were only things that the murderer would know. And the friend even drew a diagram of where Cindy's body was left in the house. But the moment that he 
knew that what his friend was telling him was true was when his friend showed him the case of the knife that he had used. Now, you might be sitting here wondering, I've just referred to this friend as the friend, so who is this friend? Well, that friend of Jackson's would be none other than John's best friend, Jim Bettis. Now, Jim Bettis, his real name is James. However, he went by Jim. And I have mentioned Jim several times throughout the course of this case because Jim was John's best friend. Jim was one of the first people that authority spoke to in regards to the murder, in regards to John's whereabouts that day. And after the murder occurred, Jim was there for John almost every step of the way, starting from when him and his parents drove up to John while John was walking, trying to process his emotions of what had just happened. And this was just hours after the murder. Now, Jim was a high school dropout. However, even after he dropped out of high school, him and John continued to remain best friends. That open door policy that Cindy had for John and all of his friends was something that Jim used quite often. He was always over at John's house talking to Cindy, talking about the potential of going back to school or what opportunities he could have for the future if he did. Cindy was a second mom to Jim. That was something that he had told many people. So when Jackson told police that Jim was the friend who confessed to murdering Cindy, they were in absolute shock because this was not the person that they had ever on their radar. This was not someone that they thought could have ever been responsible for this. However, obviously hearing what Jackson was saying, they then knew that they needed to bring Jim in for questioning, which is exactly what they did. When bringing Jim in for questioning, they also gave him a polygraph test, which I do want to mention that I didn't mention earlier. When they brought Robert in for questioning, he was also given a polygraph test, which he failed, which just goes to show why polygraph tests are not admissible in a court of law. And obviously the polygraph test was to question him in regards to his potential involvement with the murder. I'm not sure what the scoring looks like on every polygraph test. However, on the specific one that Jim was given, if you reach a negative six, you were considered to be lying. Jim's score on the questions about if he had anything to do with the murder was a negative 23. And when police confronted him about this and confronted him on the fact that he failed the polygraph, that is when he looked to police and told them, quote, I did it, okay? I did it. And after he initially confessed, Jim went on to tell police exactly what he said happened that day. He said that on the afternoon of September 6th, he was walking around the neighborhood after he had gotten into a fight with his dad. Jim said that him and his father had a very difficult relationship. The two often got into arguments, especially after Jim had dropped out of high school. His father would constantly call him names, tell him he's a lowlife, tell him he's never going anywhere in life because he dropped out of high school. And when those arguments would occur, Jim said that he would automatically be filled with rage. So after an argument with his dad on September 6th, Jim said that he began walking around the neighborhood and was so enraged that he told himself that he wanted to see if he could commit murder. 
Now, during this conversation that he was having with himself in his mind, he first decided that he wanted to kill his father because he was the cause of his rage. However, after thinking it through, Jim realized that he would not realistically be able to get away with killing his father because he thought that his dad would be able to overpower him. So he started thinking about who could be a victim that would be more vulnerable. And Jim said that while he was having this thought is when he began passing by Cindy Borton's house. Jim said that he knew that due to the open door policy that Cindy had out of the kindness of her own heart, that Cindy would let Jim in no questions asked. Jim said he walked up to Cindy's door just minutes after Robert had left from his lunch break. And when he did, he knocked on the door and Cindy answered. Cindy immediately invited him in and Jim said that he asked Cindy for a glass of water. Now what Cindy thought was just a simple request was much more calculated. Jim said the reason he asked for the water was so that the two of them would end up in the kitchen, which would give him access to all of the knives. Once Cindy was filling up the water in the glass, she had her back towards Jim. And while she was doing that, Jim quickly grabbed a steak knife from the counter, walked up behind Cindy, and slit her throat with the knife. Again, as we know from the autopsy, there was a struggle. Cindy fought for her life. And that is when Jim began reaching for all of the different utensils and knives and forks. And that is when Jim ultimately fatally stabbed her with the two-prong fork. After his confession, police then took Jim's fingerprints and compared those to the ones found on the crime scene, as well as the fingerprints that were left on the notes from the arsony fire, and they came back to be a positive match. 18-year-old Jim Bettis was then arrested on February 2nd, 1989 with a first-degree murder charge and three counts of arson. So just to be clear, Jim Bettis was the same person who was writing the notes and committing the arsony fires. It was all done by the same person. Now, as you can imagine, when John heard the news that his best friend was the one responsible for the brutal murder of his mother, he didn't believe it. According to John, Jim had been his best friend for years. Jim had constantly told John that they were going to be brothers for life. Even after the murders had occurred, John and Jim had sleepovers together and they continued to remain best friends. So to have that kind of news be told to John was the ultimate betrayal. And even Robert remembers seeing Jim around. Jim came to the funeral and shook Robert's hand and the entire family just felt completely betrayed. And as you can imagine, John felt a slight bit of guilt as well because it was through him that Jim felt so comfortable with his family. That was the setup that they had. You know, Cindy wanted all of John's friends to feel so welcomed and appreciated and Jim completely took advantage of that and then continued to act like John's friend right afterwards. Now, ultimately, on November 13th, 1989, Jim was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, so he will not be getting out ever. Now that, you guys, is the case of Cindy Borton. When I was doing my research on this case, I really couldn't 
fathom any of it only because, you know, I couldn't fathom any of it for anyone because you look at Robert, Robert is being pinned by police as the guy who did it because, you know, statistically it makes sense. And of course he had to have done it. And he comes up with this weird theory about it all being an accident and a mistake. And, you know, police have their eyes on Robert and they're trying to fit a circle into a square because Robert is the circle and the murder is the square and they feel like Robert did it. And, you know, you always look to the husband or the wife or the significant other but it's just not, it's not fitting. And then you look at John in this situation who was also questioned by police, also looked at as a person of interest, but in reality, it was the person that the Bortons opened up their lives and their hearts and their family to, you know, regardless of the fact that he dropped out of high school, regardless of any of it, Jim was welcomed with open arms from everyone in the Borton family. And so again, to take that and commit the ultimate betrayal was unfathomable. So that's my thoughts on the Cindy Borton case. I'm really interested to see what you guys have to say about it. And with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to the 200th episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here again, hi, my name's Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit the subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast on all platforms and YouTube every Wednesday for Killer Instinct Wednesdays. I'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye guys. Bye guys.